Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for bringing us into this place together, for giving us the opportunity to gather to worship you in this space. And God, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the opportunity we have to open it together, to learn from it, to grow from it, to be encouraged by it. And right now, we just ask that you'd give us ears to hear what you have for us. And God, I ask you to take my words and use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So over the last few months, we have been journeying through the narrative of the Old Testament. And as we've journeyed through that, that narrative, um, some of us have said, this has been good. And some of us have said, oh, I haven't spent that much time reading the Old Testament in a long, long time. And, 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 and for those of you that are in that place, there's good news. Today is the last day. Today is the last day in, in that journey. And we're in a, a time in history that's really, really important in history. And really, the whole narrative of the Old Testament is incredibly important to our understanding of Jesus, to our understanding of the gospel message, to our understanding of the church. We, we need to spend time studying the Hebrew Scriptures. So that's why we've been doing it. So today we're in the space in history, though, where the Hebrew people... They've begun to return to Jerusalem after being in exile for a couple different generations. Babylon had fallen to Persia, and the Persian king invited them to return, to go home, to go to the place of their ancestors. And the first wave of people came under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, who became the first post-exile governor in Jerusalem. Now, like most of the people who he had led back, he was born in Babylon. And the only picture of of the city of Jerusalem that he really had was the one that was given to him by his grandparents and his parents. And when he returns, he finds something nothing like the picture that was painted for him by his parents and grandparents. Zerubbabel and the people who come back with him, they were all about beginning the process of rebuilding the temple. That was what they were tasked with. Years later, the second wave of exiles return, and they come with a teacher named Ezra. Now, a teacher or a scribe named Ezra, and Ezra plays a very important role because after being away from Jerusalem for years, the people had forgotten their Hebrew. They had forgotten the customs of their people, and so Ezra was tasked with teaching them what the Torah said, teaching them how to live out God's word. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit more later today. It was a very, very important role to open up the scriptures and say, this is how it looks. This is how it looked back then. This is how it looks today. Taking God's word and kind of explaining it to their new context. And, And then we get to Nehemiah. Nehemiah works in the king of Persia's palace, and he hears about the struggle of his people in Jerusalem. He goes to the king and to the queen and asks for permission to leave and to help with the rebuilding efforts. And they not only grant their request, they send him with letters to governors that he's going to go through and pass along the way to ensure that he'd have safe travel. They give him supplies, supplies to rebuild his ancestor's city. And they provide a a small army to protect him along the way. And then we get to our passage today, starting at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11, where we read this. 
I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last year when I I stepped inside Jerusalem for the first time, I remember looking around at the walls and thinking, wow, if these walls could talk, what stories would I hear? If these walls could talk, what stories would I hear? Now, depending on where you are in the city, you might see five or six different types of stones, different colors of bricks, different shapes of bricks, and different colors just just filling up the different wall, kind of starting lower and then, then working their way up, getting lighter and lighter. Now, it took a couple days for me to feel comfortable in Jerusalem. There's places where the the walls get really close together and you can't really see around the corner. The the GPS on my phone, because that's what I used, the GPS on my phone wasn't working. So I had to do something that I never have to do here, ask for directions. And so I'd have to ask for directions. It wasn't quite super comfortable. And on top of that, every time I saw a group of young 20-somethings, one of them would be, be carrying a, a military-grade weapon. And I said, this is just bizarre. This is, this is just bizarre. I'm not, I'm not used to this. It was different than any place I had ever been. But after being there for a while... I had no problem leaving my uncle in the hotel room and just kind of wandering the city by myself. In fact, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed getting lost. I actually enjoyed stopping and asking people for directions. I enjoyed hearing, hearing stories. There was something freeing about wandering with no agenda and not hurrying. Something almost magical about just looking at the walls and watching, and listening. On our last day there, we stopped at the Western Wall for a second time, and then then we continued down into the old city of David. Now on the the southeastern part of the wall, there's ruins of something called the Hasmonean Tower. Now it was refortified around 150 uh, B.C., so 150 years before Christ, but, but you can still see the layers of the stones that I was talking about. The, those layers, they're, they're, they're almost exaggerated in this part of the wall. And you can see the part 
that was a part of Nehemiah's rebuild. It's right about the location where the dung gate used to be, which is the place that Nehemiah begins his journey in the middle of the night to survey the walls, looking at the condition of the walls. I imagine he's hearing stories in his head that his parents and grandparents had told him about how great Jerusalem was, and then looking at what he saw. He quietly went from gate to gate, taking it all in, and not telling anyone about his purpose yet. I'm guessing he had some of the same thoughts I had the first time I set foot in Jerusalem. If only these walls could talk, I would know what really happened here. He had heard about the great city. He had heard about the temple's glory days under Solomon. But the walls he saw also told the story of destruction and defeat. As Nehemiah and his community begin to rebuild, we're given a a blueprint for what it looks like for a community to rebuild itself. This wasn't just about a wall or a city. It was about much, much more. It was about a people remembering who they were and reestablishing their identity that had long been forgotten. As they they rebuild themselves as a God-centered community, it it comes through the building blocks of of servant leadership, of of willing participants, and, and through the ability to hear God's Word, to listen for God's Word. Now those same sorts of principles are used any time a church or a a faith community is faced with the task of rebuilding. doesn't matter if it's a physical structure or if it's a, a community itself, and I believe they're applicable to where we are as a church now and today. First, we see that building a God-centered community com- comes through servant leadership. Now, we see evidence of, of Nehemiah's servant heart in the first passage that we read this morning. He asks about, about the history of his people. How, how are the people doing? We've got the remnant here. How are the people doing who have returned? And, and what's going on in Jerusalem? And as he learns more and more about his people, his heart starts to break. He weeps and he fasts. And then he prays a prayer that, that really reveals his heart. It reveals his, his pain. But it's also a prayer that admits that both his own generation and his parents' generation had fallen short. It's a prayer of confession. It's not about him casting judgment on previous generations. That's not what it's about. It's not about him casting judgment on on his own generation. It's an acknowledgement of his own brokenness. That is why we do a prayer of confession every Sunday. It's not to heap guilt on people. It's to level the playing field and say, look, we are all broken. Nobody in this sanctuary is perfect. I know that might be a surprise. But that is why we have a prayer of confession. That is why Nehemiah prays the prayer that he prays. Is, look, we have, we've missed the mark. God has called us to one thing and we've done something else. Now he finishes his prayer and then he says, I was cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer had the task of tasting tasting the wine for the royal family. And it wasn't just to make sure that wine was top shelf. The reason that he was was 
tasting the wine was to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. And it was a position that would have taken years to work up to. It wasn't something that you get right when you start working for the palace. It would have taken a long time for him to earn the trust of the king and queen to have access to the king and queen. To his contemporaries, to the other folks who worked in the Persian palace, he would have been seen as a bit of a leader, a head butler of sorts, who had proven that he was loyal, who had proven that he could be trusted. And that trust, the trust that he had earned, is on full display as he approaches the king with the request to leave the palace and to go to Jerusalem. Now, the king of Persia knew Nehemiah was a leader. He knew he was a leader because of the position he was in in the palace. And he knew he, he'd approach his new position in Jerusalem with the same sort of attitude that he approached his position in the palace with. Now, I'm not sure I've ever been more nervous to preach as I was during the final sermon I preached when, when Haley and I uh, served the church we served in Malawi. We had spent a year getting to know the culture. We had spent a year getting to know how life looked inside the church and how life looked outside of the church. Uh, we had seen the beautiful parts of Malawian culture, and we had seen the challenging parts of Malawian culture. Now, in Malawian society, pastors are, are viewed a little bit differently than they are viewed in, in the Western world today. They, they kind of carry an elevated status. It's weird. It's, just, it's weird. They're, they're, they're essentially seen as equals to headmen and headwomen in villages. So, so the leaders of tribes and pastors are kind of seen in the same way as one another. The only difference is you can't earn your way to be a chief. Right? You're born into a family that raises the chief. But anybody can be a pastor. Anybody can go to school to be a pastor. So whenever I go to a function, something like a, a memorial service for a prominent political figure or, or something like a, a get-together with the whole city, I'd be given a chair, seated in the shade, and brought bottles of water while my wife had to sit on the floor in the dirt. And then the, the, the rest of the people in, in the dirt, I, I'd, I'd get to kind of uh, sit with the quote-unquote important people. Again, it was weird. I'm not important, I'm just just me. It was, it was a weird position to be in. So most of my Malawian pastor friends, you, you met Vasco when he was here for, for, for my installation, they have incredible servant hearts. But some of the pastors in the country definitely sought the role, sought to fulfill the role as pastor. They wanted to be a pastor because of that elevated status. They, they, so my last sermon I'm preaching and there's probably 20 to 25 Malawian pastors sitting in front of me. And I preached on Matthew 20, 20 through 28, where James and John mom asks if her sons can sit on the right and the left of Jesus in his kingdom. And he essentially responds, look, Gentile rulers seek status. You're called to serve, not to be served. And so I shared that in front of 20 to 25 Malawian pastors and just said, oh, it was uncomfortable. But the reality is, as a pastor, I'm called to serve you. I am called to serve the community because I'm called to serve God. And that's a concept that Nehemiah clearly grasped. 
clearly grasped. And if we want to be a God-centered community as a church, it's a position that our leaders in our church need to take, not just the pastors, not just John, not just me, but all of our leaders need to take that posture from pastors to staff to elders and deacons to Sunday school teachers. Every kind of leader need to take that, that servant leadership posture. It can't be about seeking our own agendas. It has to be about listening and discerning, ultimately seeking after what God has for this community first. Next, we see that rebuilding takes willing participation. After Nehemiah surveys the walls, he goes to the leaders of the the various communities and invites them to be a part of what God is doing. I know you can't read what's up on the screen. Don't. Oh, it's not as small up there. It is it over here. It's small print. Um, so he goes to them and they say, all right, let's, let's begin rebuilding. Now, Nehemiah chapter 3 through chapter 7 tells the story of everyone who, who pitches in and, and kind of begins that work. That's what that, that list is. And these weren't all master builders. That wasn't, that wasn't their role. They weren't all master builders. They were goldsmiths and perfume makers, priests, musicians, Men, women, children, everybody pitched in. Everybody had a role to play. So much so that when the opposition arose in certain places, half of the workers, they had enough workers that half of them could stop working and and kind of be on guard looking out while everybody else worked. One of my, my favorite parts about experiencing the Bethlehem experience this last December for the first time was it had the same sort of feeling where everybody pitched in. Everybody was a part of it. It didn't matter if you could build. You were invited to come and build. It didn't matter if you were a good actor. You were invited to come and, and play a part, to have, have a role. It didn't matter if you were young or old, if you could give one hour or if you could give ten. If you were a church member or if you were not a church member, you were invited to participate. Now the reality is, we need to find ways to engage people every age and stage more often than we do. When Paul's writing to the church in Corinth about unity within the church, we usually highlight his his words about every gift being needed for a, a church body to thrive. So he writes things like, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of smell be? There are many parts, but one body. And a part of that is about recognizing our own gifts and seeing the gifts of other people. But it's also about recognizing the needs of the whole community. The needs of the whole community and not just highlighting our own gift. So here with Nehemiah, we see people sacrifice their gifts, sacrifice their time, stepping out of their comfort zones and pitching in. And the reason they pitch in is because they want to participate in what God is doing with the whole. They want to participate with the whole body. Now, as we move forward together as a congregation, we're going to have to learn to do the same thing. So if we want to be a God-centered community... We need to have servant leaders. We need to have willing participants. But the truth is, it's all for naught if we can't hear God's word. If we, if we can't hear what God is saying. 
after Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the, the Israelites say, okay, what's next? What's next? What do we do next? I'm, I'm reminded of a story that, that Eugene Peterson tells where he chartered a church. He started a new church. They built the building and people stopped showing up. And so he went and he knocked on doors. He went and he knocked on doors of, of people in the church and, and said, hey, how come you're not coming to church? And they'd say, oh, we did it, pastor. We did it. Aren't you proud of us? We built the building. I imagine that that's how the, the people were, the Israelites were, when they had finished Nehemiah's wall. They said, oh, we've done it. We, we've built. And they said, well, what's, what's next? And we read this in Nehemiah chapter 7, starting at the end of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of law of Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it out loud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of law. It had been generations since something like this had happened. Generations since the Israelites had gathered as one body. And here they are together out in a public square near the water gate. Ezra, who had led the the second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem, is asked to, to pull out the Torah and to read it to the people. Now, we don't know how much he read or, or from where he read, what book he turned to, but, but we do know that they, they kind of built a platform and he, he got up and that he read from daybreak to noon, about six hours. Six hours. So that means I've got a little, little more than five and a half hours left. Now, before you feel bad for not having a six-hour attention span, this culture was an oral culture where nothing was printed. So they were used to listening to hours on end, but it was also something that they hadn't heard for a long, long time. It had been so long since they had heard the Torah that they were hungry to hear it. What does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to be hungry to hear God's word? So Ezra opens up the scriptures and the older priests, they explain what it means to the younger generations so they could understand. I imagine they passed down the stories their parents had told them about Abraham and Isaac, Moses and the Exodus, David and Solomon. They probably helped them to understand the context about things like the nuances of temple life and the the nuances of, of worship. Those were all concepts that they just didn't understand. Now, for some of the people who were listening, it was probably the first time they had heard the story. And for others, it had been so long that they just simply needed a refresher. So I, while I was at this, this small group retreat that I was at this last weekend, 
we were reading through through scripture together through a part of First Corinthians, and and one of the guys, my, my friend Jeremy, he stopped in the middle of as we're reading something, and he says, "Am I crazy? I've been I've been reading First Corinthians for thirty years, and this is the first time I've read this. How many of you have ever had that experience while reading the Bible?" Some of you who have been reading through the story have, have, have kind of expressed similar things. This is really here? The truth is, depending on what's going on in our lives and what's going on around the world, even if we've read through a passage hundreds of times in the Bible, 100 times in the Bible, when we get to that 101st time, it speaks to us differently. That's why every time I preach, I say, God, grant us the ears to hear what you have for us today. I'm guessing this isn't the first sermon that most of us have has heard on, on Nehemiah. Maybe it is. But grant us the, the ears. Every time we open God's word together, we need to say, God, grant us the ears, the eyes, to see, to hear what you have for us in this text. That's the beauty and the challenge of Scripture. And it's also the reason why we need to be reading it continuously as a community. It's why we're journeying through the story. We we need to be rooted in Scripture. Earlier this year, in January, we began a a bit of a a rebuilding process here at WPC. We have a, a Vision 2020 team that was formed, and it's comprised of four staff members, four elders, and, and four church members. And, and we're working to build off of the strong foundation that has already been here, the strong foundation that was built over the last 50 years, and to say, okay, what's next? What, what's next? What does God have for us next? It's primarily a team that is tasked with discerning and listening to where God may be leading us. Now, we're not in a, in a place as a church where we're necessarily building buildings or, or walls, unless you want to talk about the, the courtyard. In, in the, but our church is in a phase of rebuilding. And there's a lot that we can learn from Nehemiah's story. And my hope is that we would be a congregation that aims to be a God-centered community full of servant leaders, full of willing participants, and full of a community who's eager to hear and to listen to God's word and to apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this community, for what you've done through it and what you continue to do through it and what you will do through it in the future. May we hold fast to what you have for us leaning on you for direction and clinging to the good news of your story. We pray these things in your name. Amen.